Welcome back to the Connector Study podcast series, where we explore the experiences of doing ethnographic fieldwork with children in three different cities. My name is Dr. Melissa Nolis. I'm a senior lecturer in sociology based at Goldsmiths, University of London, and the principal investigator of the Connector Study. I also carried out the fieldwork in London. Today's episode is the fourth in a series of six podcasts. In this podcast, together with my fantastic colleagues, Dr. Vinarasan Araldos and Dr. Christos Vorvandakis, both research fellow on the project who carried out the ethnographic fieldwork in Hyderabad and Athens respectively, we reflect on our experiences of sampling. Finding children and families to take part in our study was probably one of the more challenging aspects of the research. We were asking for a long-term commitment of three years as well as the opportunity to spend time with children and families during largely leisure time, a short commodity in family city life, as it turns out. In this podcast, we discuss the sampling process and the work that went into constructing the sample in the Connector study, an ethnographic study with children exploring the relationship between childhood and public life over a three-year period. Well, what's your take on sampling? How did you do? How did you find the children for our research? How did you recruit them for our research? Yeah, so we often get asked about sampling and how we recruited the children for the study. And I think that's probably, and we've discussed it a lot amongst ourselves, that's, I think, probably one of the hardest things that we had to do in terms of the, the research. The full sampling took about nine months to a year to complete. It wasn't until about 12 months into the field work that we had our actual, what we now call a full sample of 45 children and their families across three cities. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably worth saying that originally when the proposal was written, the proposal had been for 100 children <laughs> and families to be part of the study. Um, and as we sort of got into, so we sampled and did field work at the same time. So as, children, as we found children for the study, we then started to conduct the field work with them. And what we realised, probably about three or four months into the process of, of recruiting children and families to the study, at that point, I think we probably maybe had about six or seven families that we were working with each, that if we were going to work multimodally with children in as much depth as we were, and at this point we were visiting children once a month, once every six weeks, spending a minimum of two hours with them, in some cases the entire day, we realised that actually it would be absolutely impossible on the resources that we have, meaning the three of us, to work with 100 children in the same way. And so we took a decision as a team to reduce that number to 50, and then we ended up with 45 children, which I think was the wise decision. So that's in terms of kind of thinking of the sampling broadly. And then and then the actual recruiting was an interesting process. I'll speak a little bit about London. Maybe you can yes, chip yes, in sure. as, as relevant in Athens and Hyderabad. In London and actually across the three cities, we thought, well, actually, you know, let's approach schools. Let's approach primary schools. This is probably a good place to recruit children. With that thinking, I spent about three months in London trying to get um, children in schools in Hackney and in Hampstead recruited into the study. And I'll just do a small parenthesis here that originally we'd also thought in terms of sampling of the city, that we'd choose specific areas in the city where we knew that there was rapid social change. And that is also a form of sampling. And there also became apparent very quickly that if we were to remain in 
these two areas or in very specific areas, we weren't tapping into our full network across the city and we weren't going to get a kind of a broader picture of these of the three cities. So anyway, so I spent three months trying to get heads of school on the phone in Hackney to no avail, and that's having used quite, in some cases, quite influential people in, in the education system to introduce me to heads of school, and that didn't work. So we start, I started using word of mouth. I advertised the study online. I then started tapping into other net professional networks across the city from having done research in London for over 10 years. And that sort of pushed things along as well. And then in February of half term in 2015, I created a questionnaire, which was a kind of legitimate way to approach strangers out in public. And I went down to the South Bank on one of the half term days and it was full of families. It also happened to be a bright, sunny winter day. And I think that did make a difference because people were outside. People were quite happy to be approached by a stranger. <laughs> and I, I gave out, I think I did about 15 questionnaires. And that gave me an opportunity to then talk to parents. I approached parents who looked like they had kids in the age group. So, yeah, the age group that I was interested in. And that allowed me to legitimately approach them and to tell them a bit more about the study. And I was able to recruit three families in one afternoon from different areas of London, very different families who all just happened to be at the South Bank that afternoon and who were willing to take a punt on a complete stranger. And then I also, through various contacts in social services, but also in charities, I was able to then fill the rest of the sample. Yeah, so word of mouth, going out on the street, and then prior sort of professional contacts. And that still resulted in what's quite a diverse sample in London, heterogeneous, lots of different um, experiences coming into the study. And one where we, once our colleague Robin sort of put all the cases into Enviva and we were able to map them in more bureaucratic terms in terms of area and the different demographics of the area and the different demographics of the family. It's still in kind of objective criteria, if you like, it's still a diverse sample. So that's been very interesting in terms of finding or discovering, you know, what it's like to recruit in a big city to study that's actually that was quite intensive big time commitment from families we're asking for three years we're asking to be part of their lives in different ways mm. yeah i think that's probably the first things that come to mind in terms of something yes in yes great pretty similar not, not exactly in <laughs> athens uh, it was more difficult to get uh, to schools straight from the beginning we needed a different kind of uh, an ethical clearance that would go through the Ministry of Education in Greece, and which we decided not to do, however, so we wouldn't directly approach, officially and directly approach, public schools at least, which uh, somehow, I don't know, in retrospect it worked also pretty well in the way of having escaped also more authoritative uh, access to children to be part of the sample. At the time, it was difficult not having this option. Now, in retrospect, I think I'm happy that we didn't, actually. I think that it's fine. Otherwise, yes, there was uh, unofficially through teachers in schools, working in schools or in kindergartens or something I tried. Word of mouth, more than anything else, actually worked in Athens. 
It was complicated always. It was complicated for the reasons that Melissa just said. I mean, you go to a family that you have never met before, to a parent or both parents, and you start a discussion about, hey, hi, can I <laughs> hang out with your child for the next three years or so? Or, it's not the easiest uh, thing. And we also had many discussions about, uh, about parents' anxieties and what this means and what this attempt of contact by a stranger means in a big city. And given the whole, you know, often parenting uh, madness about how, who to trust, what is dangerous, what is not dangerous and so on. I must have spoken to so many people in this process, to so many people either people like I would consider, let's say, gatekeepers or contacts or mm-hmm. parts of a network that would lead me to people, who, you know, to families that I have never met before, so to say, and I was trying to do that. Also, as the sample was being completed little by little, there was the extra, let's say, anxiety of uh, the, the diversity that Melissa noted before. I mean, when you... When you start, you know, you're going to have 15 families and you realize that in the first eight, you have basically seven girls. (laughs) (laughs) So you need to be more targeted, which makes it more complicated. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about the diversity in socioeconomic background of the families that you are also recruiting in there, or you're thinking about the neighborhoods, once we decided that we're going to go for different neighborhoods in the city. I remember one, one evening... Having in the morning, having met the parents of one girl who have responded positively, they gave me a call. Okay, you can meet us in our office at that time. I went there, I met them. They were both lawyers and they were both looking at every line in the agreement and the consent form and all the papers I had with me. And it felt kind of an interrogation almost, like, you know, being there and listening to them in a a lawyer's office under bright white lights. And I I left thinking, okay, that was great that I did it. I did such things anyway, but it's great that I did it, but I'm not sure that, you know, that's the case. And then in the evening, I was at a friend's place and I received a phone call like 7 o'clock, 7.30 in the evening. And it was the father and told me, hi, Christo, hi, here's my daughter. She wants to say something to you. And he handed me, he handed her the phone. So it was her who said, hi, I want to be part of this research. <laughs> it felt brilliant. I mean, it, 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 it was one of these moments, you know, that you think, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Worth it. <laughs> yes. I think we had similar experiences on soccer. What about you? Uh, it's, it's almost similar, actually, in terms of the school, of course. The, the, the biggest challenge for me, actually, is that so Hyderabad is totally new for me when I went for my research. So I didn't know about any places in, within Hyderabad. So I hardly have any knowledge about the demography of Hyderabad. But slowly, of course, I get accustomed to the city. Then initially, of course, we approached schools. Uh, and there was unproductive initially. So most of the schools we approached, international schools, some private schools, I don't know for what reasons, they're a bit scared to allow the researchers um, for for you know, getting recruited through the schools. 
and even strangely in some other schools they didn't even like to see us actually so they just actually send a message to the the secretary of the principal or someone else saying that actually is too busy or she is too busy not having time to meet you so that is actually no we got the response from schools mm. um but interestingly we recruited a couple of children in our research through government schools of course government schools usually we we see them as quite bureaucratic so without official letters you can't enter into schools or get uh, not or get time to talk to the headmasters but um, luckily we got a couple of samples um, from government schools who's in the slums no so called poor areas in disadvantaged locations and uh, we used other means as well of course you know being new to the city i relied um, on my professional network and people my colleagues in ses where i was based at so i spoke with people i put a word to them so through my contacts um, you know i spread the message similarly i contacted ngos as well so i got a couple of recruitments through ngos Uh, we approached quite a few NGOs in the beginning, so and they guided us to get into the communities or you know, get contacts with uh, the key informants, at least or the key people within the mm-hmm. the neighborhood, and they helped us to find a couple of mm-hmm. uh, families in, especially in Old City, for instance, uh, and in other slums as well. The interesting thing uh, for me, actually, the unusual thing, actually, is once actually we went for a social event as well. Uh, we went for a the family event, the the entire apartment block, people from the entire apartment. block gathered so it was like you no know, it's, it's a strange feeling it's like going for a fishing kind of thing you know? so you're just looking for um so um, you are unaware of you no know? so and we just interacted with so many kids within the you no know, in the party in the function and um, eventually got one girl for our research uh, that was quite unusual because attending social event and talking to people and that's how it happened in hyderabad and we got some samples through snowball as well through word of mouth mm-hmm. um from one family and they referred another family through their networks and through the so that is how it happened in hyderabad mm-hmm. and as i said the the composition of the sample of course we were mindful of the the heterogeneity not keeping the heterogeneity in mind when we recruited uh, but strangely we ended up with nine girls you know the more girls almost two third of our sample so uh, representing girls then boys mm-hmm. and a couple of families dropped out from our hyderabad sample as well that's quite mm-hmm. unfortunate but in a way actually it's quite expected as well quite disort in a disorting way actually our first recruitment itself actually dropped out after a couple of visits that was quite disorting but anyhow actually we just managed to pull off the strings mm-hmm. and uh, we ended up with 12 families in hyderabad and the spread is actually quite um, it's wide actually uh, initially when we were thinking of sampling we wanted to take families within 3 kilometers radius mm. uh, from ses but we just ended up you know spreading our uh, radius and the the reach mm. and there was in a sense it has practical implications as well because it's, it consumes a lot of time for traveling for commuting mm. so every time when you go and come back so it's an, especially in city like hyderabad the traffic is too much and it, yeah we ended up doing it mm-hmm. i mean that's something and i remember we had lots of conversations as to whether we should stay in specific locations in the cities mm-hmm. or go pan kind of city and i think i know it made our lives much harder in terms of traveling in terms of access in terms of time but i think in retrospect it was the right decision to make because it feels that you know we can say that this is a study of children in Athens yes in London in Hyderabad whereas i did feel very uneasy about the initial advice that we'd had about sampling in very specific areas and i think then you would have had to say this is the story of the area 
not of the city. I mean, even, okay, fine, it's still limited in terms of mm-hmm. the city, but we do have very, very different neighbourhoods in all of the three. Yes, and this is an understanding that we also gathered along as yes. we were proceeding, as we were understanding the particular yes. neighbourhoods through the yeah. research. Another issue that uh, connects to sampling was the issue of AIDS. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, so we discuss about AIDS because this is also something. Yes, that, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, sibling as well, is it? it you used. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, we got a couple of siblings as well as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is this uh, strange realization that we had uh, in Athens during the exhibition that we had not written anywhere the age of the children of the study. In all the panels we had there, in all the, ca- the exhibition catalog, perhaps mm-hmm. also not. We didn't mention, and we were asked again and again by people, okay, but how old were the children? Mm-hmm. So this made us think about it a lot, uh, about why didn't we mention, why why, yes. why did it escape us, why wasn't it there? You yes, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, because I wrote the panels, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it was to my utter mortification when I realised that there really was no mention of age on what is probably the most public documents that we've created and you know very understandably people were quite perplexed going how old are these children Mm -hmm. and this is not the only time in presentations I often forget to say how old the children are I'm sure in um in the book proposal we've just written it was a minor detail that was hidden and brought out by one of the informal reviewers saying you might want to say a little bit more strongly how old the children are because of course that's an important aspect of the study in that a lot of the research that's done around participation in politics is done with young people and possibly maybe with slightly older children maybe from eight onwards but we're actually working and I'll say it now with (laughs) six-year-olds so the children were six give or take six to 18 months when we first started the study and this is a much younger age group that's not covered in the research. So, you know, why did it become a thing that wasn't a thing for us? I think part of the reason is because we're not teachers, we're not doctors, we're not social workers, um, we're working in a social work context. And all of these contexts that occurs to me are very much structured with very rigid age boundaries. So it does really matter whether you're five and a half, six in a school context when you go and see the doctor, I mean, if you think of growth charts, for instance, you know, young children often plotted against growth charts and standardised kind of measurements to see how they fare in relation to a kind of average. But we're very much working from a theoretical perspective of everyday life. A lot of the theories we've ended up using are rooted in phenomenology. We're interested in people's lived experience. And so in that sense, you know, how old a child is beyond the idea that they were born around the financial crisis becomes somewhat irrelevant, I think, to the way that we're working. And that's probably the only reason kind of I can think of in terms of why this quite significant piece of information has been missed out in um, public representations of the study. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think this is something that we also learned along mm. the way. It's also something that we became conscious of. When we started, we were also like trying to think of what month should they have been born yes. to, um, up to yes. what month. Yes. Right? It was something that in the surrounding discourse, both in, in theory as well mm-hmm. as uh, in discussions with people we had in the university or around the university, 
it was something that was complete always being brought up like how yeah. old how old how old yes. we gave up our uh, fixation with this strict categorization mm-hmm. of stages which very much connect to developmental understandings of mm-hmm. what childhood is mm-hmm. and this is as we realized this is pretty much the opposite of what we're doing I and mean, this yes. is not what we, are, we were yeah. interested at yes. and for sure we are not interested at in the kind of comment or responses that you get when you do say, you know, for example, in Athens, to a parent that a member of the general public that asks, okay, how old was the girl who said that? Seven. Wow, and she was seven and says something like that. Yes. Yeah, well, okay. You only say this when you know her age. Yes. If she was eight, would it be different? Or yes. if she was six? Actually, yes. and why? Yes. Look at what she yes. says for first. And exactly. Forget exactly. about it. Yeah. And in fact, some of the comments and what we did in the exhibition was to do a selection of quotes around some of our themes, so public and private. And we we led the kind of what is public life with one of the quotes from from a boy in London who says, and this resonates with us, the rescue public life. I know what that is. I can't quite tell you, though. And I think that that's a beautiful articulation. And does it matter that he was six and a half, seven? There's a few other things I wondered um, in terms of the sampling. So just a couple of reflections, and Vinarasan, you you picked up on this in terms of dropout mm. rates. So one of the things, yes, we have had a couple of families, families drop out from Hyderabad, yeah. one family in Athens. In London, I had one family who dropped out after two and a half years. They didn't want to do the second round of biographical interviews. But in a sense, we've been quite, and I think we can say this, sort of quite successful in terms of retaining um, families on the study. And I wondered if we might sort of reflect a little bit on that and why that might be. I think it has to do a lot with the, also with the relationships that we developed with the families, right? The fact that we were open to relationships that would go beyond the professional roles and the roles of the informant and the research set. I think this played a role. I mean, we had uh, we had an ongoing, as we have mentioned in a couple of examples and a couple of occasions also in these discussions now, um, it was the relation beyond that. Yeah. Also, however, there was a kind of trust in what we are doing as we were going along and mm-hmm. as the children, but also the parents were understanding what is, and also we, <laughs> we were understanding what it is that we are doing. I think that uh, there, there was both a kind of a, an evolving trust as well as an, an inter, a curiosity also. Yes. Like, what is the, what yeah. will, where will it go? How yes. will it go on? I also feel that actually children st- started enjoying the pro- being yes. part of the project mm-hmm. and that made them to feel comfortable for being with us mm-hmm. uh, during our research visits yeah. and they started enjoying being with us and yeah. they started asking when are we coming next time. So... Yes. And they started feeling that they've been part of the project. They started owning the project. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, actually, it's very important. So that, that's the key element mm-hmm. of sustaining this relationship. And, and because every year when we went back, so we asked them whether they wanted to be part of the project, which sort of mm-hmm. a renewal kind of thing. So they still wanted to be part of the project, and they continued this relationship and the journey with mm-hmm. us for, for three years. Mm-hmm. So that's quite amazing. I completely agree with you, and I think enjoyment has a lot yeah. to do with it. I think also more recently we've started talking about the study as being partly more kind of traditional ethnography, albeit multimodal, um, but also involving a lot of cultural work. 
And I remember in London, for instance, a lot of fascination from the very beginning from a number of the children about the public exhibition at the end. Mm. And so a kind of thinking of us more in the long term, as well as enjoying it, as well as the good relationships, Mm. but wanting to be part of that process. And I remember one child in particular being quite tough in terms of so... And this is very, very beginning. I think it was probably the first or second visit. So on my time horizon, the actual intricacies and details of the exhibition didn't even feature in my thinking at this point. And he was asking me, so where are we going to have this exhibition? And how is it going to look? And what are we going to do for it? And when am I meeting the other children? And so there's a kind of, you know, there was a thing I think that they felt part of. And perhaps, I mean, we might think of the study as a kind of childhood publics that we sort of created and that the children were part of. But I think that might also have something to do with the retention. Just going back to the mm-hmm. uh, discussion on age, Melissa, I'm just mm-hmm. thinking actually, what is that uh, Jenny Morrow's article on decentering age? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. Age itself actually, it's, it's, it has a lot of connotations in the Western context because of this developmental paradigm, I guess. But whereas in other contexts, actually, that's less relevant. But as you said, actually, because of the schools, and mm-hmm. since this is institutionalized, the age becomes more relevant in the in the knowledge discourse mm-hmm. than in real life, mm-hmm. you know, with, when we meet families and children. I think it's also probably important to say in terms of sampling, and again, I think this links to retention, is that a lot of the families that we had on the study were families that were volunteers, where parents had a track history, a history or biography of volunteering, of getting involved in school issues, community issues, and being quite active. And I think, yes, we do have a heterogeneous sample, but if there is something in common amongst at least the families, as represented by the parents, is the activity of kind of being generally quite interested in social issues. And so you talk about them being curious about what we were doing, mm-hmm. as well as our own curiosity to work out what we're doing. But um, I think a lot of them were quite invested in, in the ideas that the study is trying to tap into. You have been listening to the fourth of six podcasts produced by the Connector Study team, where team members, Vinarasan Araldos, Christos Varvantakis and me, Melissa Nolas, discuss our experiences of sampling for an ethnographic study with children in three different cities. You can find the rest of our podcast series on our website at childhoodpublics.org.